I invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 10. I'm sorry, John chapter, yeah, John chapter 10. I got ahead of myself, started thinking about next week. John chapter 10, we're going to finish up John chapter 10 today, and I was looking this week at uh, where we were in our study of the book of John, as I look back over uh, my notes and different things. Uh, It was a year ago this weekend we started our study of the book of John. So let that sink in, that a year ago today we have, and we're about halfway through maybe, okay? And uh, I just want to say thank you because um, there have been 40 messages on the book of John so far, and you've come and listened and uh, I appreciate that. And you haven't slept too much, you know, through that. But, uh, I, I mean, this is, this is a, there's a lot here, isn't there? In this wonderful gospel that shows us that Jesus is our only hope for eternal life. There is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And uh, here in John chapter 10, uh, last time we looked at John 10, we looked at Jesus' discourse on him, his identity as the, the good shepherd and what that meant and how he was the only way to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. He was the only uh, hope for that, and he's the one who takes care of us and watches over us. That's what the good shepherd does. And so then today, we're going to look at the, the second half of John chapter 10 and see uh, what, this, what, what Jesus shares with those who are coming against him, and we're going to talk about the reality of rejection. So let's look at John chapter 10 today, verses 22 through 42, to help us gather the whole context of our passage. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Then he went away, again beyond the Jordan, to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about of this man were true, and many believed in him there. Father, we thank you for the time we have now set aside in our service today where we can just focus on the word of God and what you have recorded for us and preserved for us to read today. Lord, we ask over the next few minutes, you would quiet our hearts and minds, and you would help us 
to listen to what you have for us to hear today. Help us to have open hearts, open ears, and may your Holy Spirit have freedom to do your work today. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit of God, which illumines the word of God to us, and that we can understand what is written here because of your mighty work. Help us now to honor you in all that's said and done. In your name we pray. Amen. Inevitably, in life, you and I, one day, or maybe multiple times, are going to face rejection. Whether it be the girl who turns you down for a date, the crowd you can't seem to break into, the job or the promotion that you are seeking, or perhaps presenting the gospel to someone else, eventually you will experience the reality that someone will look at you and say, no, that's not for me. And you will face rejection. Sometimes there are understandable and stated reasons. Sometimes it's personal. Other times it's, it's unexplainable, but the mind of that person that is rejecting whatever it is that's going on is made up, and they're going to turn you away. Jesus, in his earthly life, was no stranger to this idea of rejection. He experienced it time and again throughout his ministry. He particularly experienced it from the religious leaders of Israel. And over the last few messages in the book of John, we've seen that rejection take shape and Jesus' response to that rejection. But one of the greatest truths about Jesus in regard to the rejection that he experienced is that he never left that rejection unexposed. He revealed very clearly to those who were rejecting him the folly of that decision and the need that they had for the hope of salvation that's found only in himself. And here in this passage before us today, we see the reality of the rejection Jesus experienced, but we also see the realities for those who choose the path of rejection. Because the, so, so the, the title here is a little bit of a double-edged sword that, that you have the reality that Jesus is facing rejection, but there is a reality that those who reject him have to come to terms with as well. And what you see in this passage is, is the reality of Jesus' identity and work confronts unbelief, exposing it and challenging unbelievers to turn to him. Those who reject Jesus Christ, those where they, they stood before Jesus that day or, or sit here or in our world here in 2023, those who reject Jesus Christ cannot do so and say, well, I, I, mean, I didn't have enough information. I, I didn't know. Jesus was very clear about who he is and what he's done about whom sent him and the work that he had come to do and the need that not only those who stood there that day, but the need that we have today to place our faith in him and to live for him in his strength. And so let's look today at this passage, at what it shows us about Jesus and his work and how it challenges our own hearts as we seek to, to, to live for him and to grow in a relationship with him. And what you see in the first nine verses here, in verses 22 through 30, is you see the besieging crowd that gathers around Jesus. But before we, before we get there and, and really see everything there, I want you to see the, the setting of where we are in verses 22 and 23. It says, now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Here in the middle of John chapter 10, we have another scene change. So... Since the beginning of John chapter 7, 
The events that we have observed there have taken place during or not long after the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a big event in the life of Israel. It's one of the feasts where people were required to come to Jerusalem to observe it. And so we looked at everything that took place there around the Feast of Tabernacles. It takes place from John chapter 7, really up until uh, the discourse on the Good Shepherd, which took place right after that feast and right after Jesus healed the man who was born blind. And now... Here in in verse 22, John moves ahead roughly about two months after the end of John, uh, verse 21. Because in verse 22, we are told the Jews are now observing the Feast of Dedication. Now, I just, I'm curious, how many of you in here already know what the Feast of Dedication is? Okay, Uh, you actually do, but you don't know because we refer to it today as Hanukkah is what it's typically called. How many of you have heard of, at least heard of that, right? Sometimes it's called the Feast of Lights. It's actually still observed in Israel today. It's, it's a feast that's held on the 25th day of the month Chislev on the Jewish calendar. Now, that month includes part of what you and I know as November and December. And then again, it's an eight-day event. It's an eight-day feast that's held. And this feast is not one that was originally prescribed in the law. You you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which was found in the law of God. God said, this is a feast that you're going to keep in remembrance of these things. This one was not one of those. Instead, it originated from events that took place in the 2nd century B.C. The Jews, who at that time were under the rule of the Syrian king, his name was Antichus Epiphanes. They were suffering great persecution under him. Because what he was seeking to do was he was seeking to Hellenize all of the people who were under his rule. Hellenization is just the imposition of Greek culture on other people. He was seeking to to force people to come into his way of thinking and his way of doing things and his way of worship, whatever it may be. So sometime around 167 B.C., he captured Jerusalem and desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. He then set up a pagan altar in its place and built a statue of Zeus in the most holy place of the temple. Okay, so you can see what's going on here, right? He's trying to force this view of culture and religion on the people. He oppressed the Jews in an attempt to stamp out their religion and force them into his ways. Well, this persecution incited a revolt amongst the pious Jews. And in 164 BC, just three years later, the Jewish leader named Judas Maccabeus liberated the temple and reconsecrated it. And it is then, at that time, they established what is known as the Feast of Dedication. Over the years, this feast became very popular. Many would return to Jerusalem for it, even though it wasn't considered a pilgrim feast where people had to return to Jerusalem. And what it became time for is it became a time for for many family reunions to take place. People would illumine the windows of their dwellings with lamps and with candles, and so that, that, that's when it became known as the Feast of Lights, because you would go and you would see these lights in the windows of the people. It is a time like this that, once again, national pride runs very high in the nation of Israel. And as the people reflected on the victories of the past, and they think about these things as they celebrate the Feast of Dedication, they are also then drawn to the future and the promises of the Messiah. And again, if you remember, this idea of the Christ or the Messiah is a very politicized title in the history of Israel because they expect he's going to come and overthrow the oppressors and liberate the kingdom and set up his kingdom. 
And of course, will the Messiah one day set up an eternal kingdom? Yes. But that is not why Jesus came the first time. The people had ascribed their own ideas and their own ideals to what he would be like and what he would do. So this is the cultural and really political setting of what we're walking into here in the second half of John chapter 10. But then also, let's see specifically where Jesus is. John tells us that Jesus is at the temple, and specifically, he is on Solomon's porch. Sometimes that's also called Solomon's colonnade or his portico. It's an open-aired but roofed area, and it is said that this portico was the only part that remained from the original temple. It was located on the east side of the temple, and it overlooked the Kidron Valley below. And Jesus would have been here primarily because it was winter. It was probably cold, and winter is also the rainy season in Israel, so the porch offered some relief from the weather. Solomon's porch then at this time of year especially was a popular spot for people to gather. Many would walk and meditate there. Rabbis would instruct their students and other things. And it's here as as Jesus, we are told, is walking on this porch, this portico. He is confronted by the religious leaders once again. And in verse 24, you see the hostile intentions that they bring into this encounter. It says, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long will you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So from the initial posture of this encounter, uh, we see and sense the, the, the malicious intentions of the leaders who have come to Jesus. We're reading here this morning from the New King James, and that, that word that's translated surrounded actually is probably about the best way you could translate that phrase because uh, this, this word in the Greek carries an ominous tone, and that's exactly the attitude here. That word that you have translated in front of you as surrounded is used in this form four times in the New Testament, and half of those times that word is used to talk about armies encircling somebody else. So what you're talking about here is these, these guys, these religious leaders, that's who John is referring to when he uses the term Jews here, have encircled, have surrounded Jesus because they want him, they want to force him to answer their question so they may carry out their plans. They wish to know once and for all, is Jesus the Christ? That is the Messiah, the one who was promised by God. And they wish him for him to answer this. And he says, they say, tell us plainly. That is, they want to know openly, and they wish to know how long is he going to keep them in doubt or hold them in suspense. And if you consider just the question, okay, if you didn't know anything else but just the question, is that a good question to ask? Well, yeah, right? I mean, people should be looking for the one that God promised. I mean, from the, from the time uh, that, that, that sin first entered the world, God in Genesis 3 verse 15 promised that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. And to Abraham, God said through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and to David, he said that from your lineage would come one who would sit on your throne forever. So for generation and generation and generation, they have been looking for the Messiah. So, at its basis level, okay, that's a, sure, that seems like a good question to ask. I mean, they should be looking for the Messiah. However, the posture of these leaders makes it clear that they are not purely and genuinely seeking to know, is Jesus the Messiah for salvific purposes? 
And if we consider everything we've seen in John's gospel, okay, I told you for a second to set it aside. Now, if you've been here for some of these messages, bring everything back you know that we've seen in John's gospel in these 10 chapters. And you will understand then that the men who are standing before Jesus are hard and dull of heart. Because if you have observed even a fraction of what John has recorded, is there any doubt in your mind that Jesus is the Christ? No. The very question need not be asked because Jesus has proven himself as the Messiah time and again. He has equated himself with God in the things that he has said and done. But the religious leadership of Israel has rejected him. They have plotted against him and those who follow him. And now they seek pretense for his arrest and death. What they want him to do here is they want him to make a declaration of his Messiahship on their terms that they may take action against him. And let me remind you of something. Jesus doesn't do things on our terms. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as is consistently the case, Jesus is not going to play their games here. Oh, he's going to give them the truth, but not in the way they wanted the truth or what they thought was the truth. He instead will give them the truth about himself and the truth about themselves as well. And in verses 25 through 30, we see the convicting claims that Jesus levels here. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. Jesus doesn't let this question of accusation hang unchallenged. He has made it plain for three years who he is. John's own gospel records several instances of Jesus' claims to deity that resulted in their rejection and their threats of death. The problem that these men faced wasn't a lack of information problem. No, the problem they faced was spiritual blindness and unbelief. In the first two verses of Jesus' reply that we just read, we see he calls them out twice in those verses for their failure to believe in him. They had not failed to see the truth. They had failed to take a stance of belief in it and instead had taken a stance of hatred for the truth. It does not matter what you think about the truth. Truth doesn't change. It might make you uncomfortable, You might not like it. You might hate it. You might plug your ears. As I had a pastor who said, he used to say, sometimes you plug your ears and you go, you can do that. But it doesn't change. And that's what Jesus says here. I have told you. I have shown you. But you did not believe. I mean, just two months before this, Jesus cured a man of lifelong blindness. The religious leaders then turned that sign into a farce, denying its authority and even shaming the recipient of such an act of grace. Jesus was doing things no one had ever done before, and he did these works in the name of his Father, God. He says, the works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. His power proved his origin and mission, and yet they persisted in their unbelief. And what Jesus shares here further about the truth, about the state of their souls, is both a challenge and a comfort. Let's read the rest of what Jesus says and then talk through it. 
Jesus says in verse 27, my, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The ones that are gathered around Jesus do not believe. And Jesus says, here's why you don't believe. Because you are not my sheep. And this harkens back to what Jesus had just said two months earlier and what we looked at a couple weeks ago when Jesus talked about being the good shepherd. The overriding characteristic of God's sheep is that they listen to the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd. I'll say that again. The overriding characteristic of God's sheep is that they listen to the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd. That's why Jesus says here, you aren't my sheep because you don't listen to me. You don't respond to what I say. God's sheep hear his call and, and they obey in following Jesus, believing on him. That is the mark of a true sheep. And here's the thing, Jesus knows all who belong to him. And we can take it a step further. And we can say that Jesus, as God, knows all who will respond in faith to his call. It is impossible for the sovereign God not to know these things. But that does not absolve mankind of a personal choice of faith. And here, once again, we have a necessary tension that we've talked about before that exists in the scripture that God's sovereignty and man's Man's responsibility to place his faith in him, they both exist and work together. And as I used to tell teenagers as a youth pastor, if you can tell me exactly how that works, I'll give you my job. Because I don't understand how the sovereignty of God works in perfect harmony with the free will of man. But that's what makes God God. And that's what makes me trust him. God does know who will respond in faith to him and who will reject him. But that does not preclude us from listening to the gospel and deciding what to do with it. It also does not excuse us from proclaiming the gospel to others. Sometimes we live too much on the sovereignty of God's side. That sounds weird to say it that way, but just follow me all the way, okay? We say, well, God knows, so I don't need to tell anybody the gospel. Well, no, my friend. Jesus made it very clear, go and make disciples. Yes, it's his job to do the work, but he uses us in that process. Those who respond to the voice of the shepherd, Jesus says here, belong to his flock. Jesus says here, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What Jesus is saying here is you you don't know me, you don't follow me, you're not my sheep. And then Jesus gives here one of the greatest teachings on eternal security you will find in Scripture when he says that I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Those who follow the voice of Jesus are following the one true God. And because of this, God gives to them eternal life. Notice here, Jesus does not speak here of someone earning eternal life, but receiving it as a gift from God. And that should tell us something about eternal life. 
You and I must place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. There's nothing you and I can do to gain it, to keep it, to make sure it stays around and stays good. It takes faith and trust in God for his gift of eternal life. Because at the end of the day, it's not about us, it's all about him. That's what it's based on. We cannot earn eternal life, so therefore, let me say it this way, you and I cannot work our way out of eternal life either. And here's the thing, because you have these conversations with other people, or you have these wrestlings in your own soul, perhaps you've wrestled with the eternity or the security of your soul for eternity. Perhaps you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you, th- you think later, well, I don't really know. And you think things in your head like this, well, what if I said the wrong words? Or what if I did the wrong things? And here's the thing. If saying the right words or doing the right things or being in the right place has something to do with your salvation, you have every right to doubt your salvation because it's not about the words you said and it's not about the place you were and it's not about the person who looked at you and said, well, you're saved now. It's about where did you place your faith? And if you placed your faith in repeating some prayer after somebody else or you placed your faith in, well, God, I really meant it this time, then your faith isn't in Jesus Christ. And that's the only place we can look. Because he is the only one who can guarantee us eternal life. If you know Jesus Christ truly as your Savior, you will one day pass from this life and into the next. And no one, not yourself, not false prophets, not even Satan himself, can snatch you away from God's hand. Because God is all-powerful, he is sovereign and above all. And no one can take that from him which he does not give. And that's the other thing. That if you think that you can trick God into giving you some eternal life later on, you have to understand you can't take that away from God either. He has to give it to you through Jesus Christ. I love the way one pastor put it. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I just I couldn't get away from the way it was said here. He said this, It's the truth. That if Jesus saves you, you are saved for good. If Jesus makes you alive, you'll never die. If Jesus gives you sight, you'll never go blind. If Jesus adopts you, you'll never be alone. If Jesus takes you into his hands, you will be in those hands beyond the bounds of time. When this age is a faint whisper in the annals of time, Jesus will still be holding you safe and secure in his hand. Nothing and no one can touch you there. The man who turns to faith in, in faith to Jesus Christ, gains his life, and in the process gains everything. But the one who persists in unbelief loses everything, including his life for eternity. There is safety and security in Jesus. But we have to come to him in faith and faith alone. There are certainly those who masquerade as sheep that belong, they say they belong to the shepherd, but they have never truly trusted in Jesus as Savior though they pretend to have done so. Jesus made it very clear that not all who say unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Because we understand that there there is tares, there are weeds among the wheat. And to one who may hear a message like this, who has never truly placed faith in Jesus Christ alone, I would say, I would remind you of this, God is sovereign and he knows. He knows where your faith is. 
And I would plead and implore you to turn to him. Because there is no promise of eternal life, but only eternal punishment to those who reject Jesus. You must respond to the voice of the shepherd. And this shepherd, Jesus, God the Son, he says, is also one with the Father. At the end of verse 30, and I and my Father are one. What Jesus is saying here in verse 30, he is, well, let me clarify what he is not saying. What Jesus is not saying here. That he, is, that he and God are the same person of the Trinity. And if you understand at least a little bit of that, what we see in Scripture is that there is one God, and he has manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is, is not saying here, he is not saying that, that I am God the Father. No, he is God the Son. But what he is saying is that I and the Father are one in unity, in essence, in purpose. And they are in harmony with one another. What Jesus is claiming here, he is again claiming equality with God. As God the Son, he enjoys every right that God enjoys. He is the incarnate word. He is the one who is to be worshipped, exalted, praised above all others. Because he is God. That's exactly what Jesus is claiming here. And it will again bring about a negative response. But what we see here is something that we need to remind ourselves of and take comfort in. What you see in what Jesus has, has just said in his initial opening statements here is both a challenge and a comfort to us today. It confronts us with this truth that Jesus Christ is the only way. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And Jesus Christ knows who belongs to him. These religious leaders who who had surrounded Jesus looking for an answer, looking for Jesus to answer something on their own terms, they didn't truly know Jesus. The irony of it is they had everything in their lives that would point them to who Jesus is. They had the law of God, which Jesus is going to reference here later in this passage. And, and the law of God refers, yes, to, to the writings, the, the, the things that you might think of in Exodus and Leviticus especially. But it also refers to the whole of the Old Testament, which they would have had. With the prophecies uh, that pointed ahead to Jesus and talked about what, Jesus, what the Messiah would do and Jesus was fulfilling those things. But even though they had all of that, the blindness and hardness of their heart had turned them away. And so it's a challenge to us that Jesus knows the hearts of all. That Jesus looks into our hearts. And when he does, what does he say? Because sometimes, you know, we think, well, I mean, I said, the, like I said a minute ago, I said the right words, I said this or that, and I'll just keep rowing the boat, hoping I get to heaven. You know, one day it'll all make sense, it'll all click, I just hear some things, and then I, you don't need to wait for anything to click, you need to come to Jesus. Now on the other side of it, what Jesus says here about those who have truly placed faith in him is a huge encouragement to us. 
that if you truly know Jesus Christ, there's no one who can separate you from that. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and see what Paul says there about this. I was reminded of this passage the other day when we were making, uh, I really appreciate uh, Don went with us to make some, went with me to Grand Rapids the other day so I wouldn't have to drive by myself. And uh, we went and visited with Dave and Rosemary and, and Don brought his Bible and we read these verses with Dave and Rosemary. John chapter 8, verse 37, yet in all things, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have come to him in faith and faith alone. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. There is nothing that will separate you from the kingdom of God. And I get it. Some days you wake up and you don't feel very Christian, do you? You struggle to get in the word of God. You struggle to live the word of God. You struggle to say no to sin. Lean in to God. Lean in to Jesus Christ. Seek him in his word. And remember that you didn't earn that eternal life to begin with. So you're not going to take it away. Now I would say this. Eternal security, eternal uh, um, uh, uh, sealing by the the Holy Spirit and the fact that nothing can take it away, that belongs to all Christians. But the assurance of salvation, that feeling that we have, belongs to obedient Christians. If you are a child of God and you're living in disobedience to God, you have every right to feel insecure about your salvation because you're not living the way God called you to live. God called you to live this way in himself and you're out here living some other way. And God's convicting your heart and he's pounding away at it saying, you know this isn't right and you continue to persist in what's doing wrong and you're not going to feel great. Right? We think about it this way. How many of you remember what it was like as a kid to have something wrong with your parents and they, you didn't think they knew about it and you're trying to live like that? Right? You ever had that happen? Okay. Okay. Me. Great. All right. Well, let me tell you about how that feels. Okay? You know, say you did something wrong. You disobeyed your parents. And you didn't, I, notice I used that phrase, you didn't think they knew about it. I found out as a parent, you know a lot more than your kids think you do. Okay? Kind of scares me, you know, thinking back. And, and, and how does that relationship go? You don't feel right, right? You don't feel, and it's not like you, you think, maybe you did, I don't know, maybe you thought your parents were going to kick you out of the house. I never felt that way, right? But you never felt like you had that relationship and that fellowship. There was no assuring feeling. Because why? Because you had something you had done that was wrong. In the same way, if you know Jesus Christ, you are his child, and when you sin, That by God's grace, he convicts you of that. And you know something is wrong. And the only way to get it right is to go back to the word of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, right? What is right? For reproof, what is wrong? For correction, how to get it right? For instruction in righteousness, how to live for God? That the man of God may be perfect, Fully equipped to do every good work. If there's something between you and God, don't hide it. But get it right and do it 
by the word of God. And know that in Jesus Christ you are secure, eternally, forever. And now you look at your watch and go, man, that's point one. And we're going to stop there today, okay? Because next week, I'd like us to continue to unpack this passage a little bit and see what Jesus says and what that means for us. But today, let's walk away with this eternal security that's in view, even as Jesus was surrounded by those who didn't believe. He continued to give the truth of who he is. May that encourage our hearts today. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for the message of Jesus Christ that he has proclaimed here so many years ago. Thank you that it continues to hold true today because you continue to hold true. You do not change. Lord, help us today to see you for who you are. Help us to be challenged with, this, with these things, that in you we have every hope of eternal life. And without you, we are lost, alone, and we have no security. Lord, challenge us with that today. Convict our hearts of sin. Help us to want to have a desire to know you and to love you and to live for you. And may we take whatever steps are necessary to ensure that in our hearts and lives. We ask now as we close the service, You would be honored. Your name we pray. Amen.